Good morning. Once upon a time, there was a family, young couple that was buying their first house. And like all young couples, they were looking for just the right house, just the right price. Um, They made their bid, and then they got the home inspector to come and take a look at it. And they met with the home inspector, and they said, well, what's the word? Is it a good house to buy or not? And the home inspector said, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is it's a really cute house. The bad news is it's got a foundation problem. And quite worried, they said, okay, how bad is it? Is it something we can fix? And he said, well, when I was going around with the real estate agent, I found out it was bad enough that when I made a joke to the agent about the foundation, the walls cracked up. (laughs) So I trust that... uh, As we look at the scripture today, you will find that um, this is a a message that helps us to focus on our own foundations and the importance of having those correct. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And I'm going to read this passage for us as we start. This will be the text for today's sermon. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So as we look at this passage, I want to focus first on the gospel. And in verse 1, Paul tells us that the gospel is what he preached, and it is good news. The meaning of the gospel is good news. And we need to remember that this is not only good news, this is great news. This is the message of how we became right with God. Our problem starts back in Genesis. And we need to remember that there's a history, there's a historical basis to the gospel. There's a, before the good news came, we had a problem. Our problem was that God made everything and it was good. We see that in Genesis. But it didn't stay good for long. Satan appeared and he tempted Adam and Eve and he led them into sin And because of sin, we inherited death and separation from God. So at that point, the story 
of our existence is not good. And then on that scene comes good news, the gospel. Jesus is our Savior. So Paul tells them in verse 1, you heard it, you received it, you trusted in it. Um, And that's what we're called to do. That is our foundation. But remember, the gospel is actually good news. Now, in this category, there was, in this, in Corinth, there's a little problem. If we look ahead at verse 12 to 14, and I'll read that for you, you don't need to skip to that. Um, Some were preaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. And Paul says in verse 12, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So it's against that little wrong belief and teaching that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians to straighten them out. And he does give them a warning. Um, In verse 2, we see this warning. And and, uh, it's a warning we all need to take seriously. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain with no real purpose um, if there's no resurrection of the dead. And so we hold on to the resurrection because it is essential. It is part of the gospel. On your outline, um, Jesus, Messiah, is our foundation. Where do we see that? Verse 3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And we need to remember that Jesus Christ is his name, but what does that mean? In this case, I like to substitute Messiah for Christ because we're all very familiar with Christ. The, that's the Greek term for Messiah, anointed one, uh, which comes from the Hebrew. And sometimes it's good for us to hear the, the, the old version. Jesus, Messiah, is our foundation. He is our foundation. He is the one who saves us. Um, in verse 3, It says Christ, and then he goes on to say in verses 4 through 8, he. He says it actually repeats it six times. That tells us that Christ is our foundation. He himself is the good news. He is our salvation. He is the gospel. Looking further at verse 3, we see that Christ died according to the scriptures. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then we want to look at where that came from. What was the scriptural foundation? Because the gospel didn't come in a vacuum. It came, it was prepared by God in advance. It had been planned before the world was founded. And it was talked about in Isaiah. If we look at Isaiah 53... Verses 5 and 6, reading through verse 9. I'm going to read that for you. 
Our foundation is based on predicted prophecy. It's based on God's plan in advance. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was on us, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So Christ died according to the scriptures. It's pretty clear from Isaiah that he was cut off from the land of the living, assigned a grave with the rich in his death. And that is the first part of our foundation. Christ came, he died for us, he paid for our sins. Furthermore, as we look at verse 4, we see that he was buried. Now, why is that important? Well, there should be no question about someone who died once they were buried, that they are dead. It's an end result. It's the final thing. And in fact, um, interestingly, that was also predicted beforehand. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 20. I'm sorry, in Matthew 12, 39 to 40. If we take a look at that verse, Jesus predicted that he would spend three days in the grave. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus took that illusion and applied that to himself, telling us in advance that he was destined for three days in the grave. So it's clear that he was buried, that he died. There's no question about that. But it doesn't stop there. He was raised. Continuing on, the the scripture tells us that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, where did that come from in the Old Testament? Well, one of the places, not the only place, but one of the places is Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. We see this predicted. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And although the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So right there we see the prediction that this was not the end. Death was not the end. The grave was not the end. Resurrection was coming. He was raised. That's why we have an empty tomb. And it was predicted in advance. Furthermore, does it stop there? No, the gospel tells us that Jesus appeared. And we look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15 and continue on from that. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So 
my question to you is, how many witnesses do you need for evidence? One, two reliable witnesses. We have hundreds of witnesses. And Paul tells us that, yes, at the time, you Corinthians, when, when this was written to them, a lot of these people, the 500, are still alive. Some have passed away. But you can go and you can talk to these people. You can talk to the apostles. You can talk to those 500 that are still left. The resurrection is a historical fact. And that is so important for us as we think about the surety of God's word to us and his promise to us. The resurrection is a historical fact. The Bible doesn't come to us just as a book that fell out of heaven, an essay written by or about God. It comes to us as a life experience. It comes to us as Jesus' life, uh, death, resurrection. And so it's on that that we take our stand. The tomb was empty. No one could produce Christ's body afterwards because the tomb was empty. So that is the foundation, Jesus our Messiah. What does all that mean to us? What is the nature of the good news? The nature of the good news is, number one, that our our sin is paid for. We see that in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid for it. So when we look at our foundation, we need to ask ourselves, and I'm going to ask myself this question as well, do I understand that it's the death and the resurrection that makes up my foundation? And if I haven't understood that, I need to go back and reapply that to myself, to rethink that through, to understand what that means. That's the foundation of our belief. That's the foundation of our worship for the Lord. If that's not your foundation, if you haven't come to that place in faith, you can. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never drive them away. So the offer of salvation is to all who will believe, to all who take up his offer of him paying for your sins, of bringing a right relationship to God as well. Furthermore, the good news is that our fellowship with God is restored. And we see that in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, I'm going to read that passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So not only do we have no condemnation, but our fellowship with God is restored. That curse from the garden, that separation, is taken care of through Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Death is defeated. One of the important passages to look at 
in this regard is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. And I'm going to read that section for you. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Now, living in the suburbs in our modern world, we don't really understand what the first fruits are. But Christ is the first fruits. That's an agricultural term and refers to the harvest when the crops are done. The first fruits are those that are first pulled out of the out of the harvest. And those tell us what? They'll tell us that there's more to come. That's only the beginning. That's what Christ's resurrection was for us. He is our first fruits. He is our proof that death is defeated. But there's another proof, too, that we can all participate in. And that is the new life that we have in Christ. So not only do we have the proof of Death's defeation, being defeated through the first fruits, Christ's resurrection, but we have a new life. In Romans 6, 3 through 4, we read, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So the second proof of death's defeat is the new life we have. And if you haven't thought about that, think about your life before you became a follower of Jesus. How has your life changed? How has it transformed? There should be a testimony from our lives going forward. Our lives should be different. That's also the proof that death is defeated because eternal life starts from the time we receive it. It begins now, and it continues forever. That's the definition of eternal life. So our lives should be also proof that Christ is risen. Think about some of those people you know, and you've probably heard many testimonies and stories of people who have become believers how their life has changed, how they've gone from slavery to sin, to addictions, to harmful behaviors, and they have become people who worship and serve and live a life that's pleasing to God. So that's the second proof of the resurrection, that death, I'm sorry, the second proof of death's defeat. We begin a new life here in this life. There's also two results of the resurrection. And one reason, and both of these are yet to come. These are future. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, we see the first one. I'll read that passage. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So the, one of the results of the resurrection is that our resurrection is coming. 
That day of redemption of our bodies, of a new body, is ours, and it will come to us. The second result of the resurrection we see in Revelation 20, 1 through 4. I'm sorry, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And I'll also read that passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So a new heaven and a new earth is the next result of the resurrection. And in that we can rejoice. That's good news. We will be in a new place with new bodies. Death is defeated. Death is defeated. Okay, so why, why does this come at the end of the, of the letter to the Corinthians? Um, Pastor Jim, as he's preaching, goes kind of sequentially. He's teaching us through Mark. But as a guest preacher, I get to drop in. But also the, the advantage of that is I can pick any subject. The, the disadvantage is that I'm not giving you the context that it occurs in. So I want to give you a little context. The Corinthians had problems. They did. Um, Paul says in verse 3, chapter 3, you are still worldly. And in the first chapters, he talks about divisions. They were a divided church. Some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow Peter. And he said, this ought not to be. We follow Christ. The body is one. So they had divisions. They had immorality. They had problems with, they had problems in their church. But also, too, this is a church that reached out to Paul. They had questions. They knew they had issues. Um, Chapter 7, Paul starts talking about some of the questions that they asked him. Things about marriage. Things about food offered to idols. Do you eat this stuff or not? How do you do that? Things about church behavior. How do you use the gifts of the Spirit? And so Paul goes through and addresses each of those. And then, at the very end, he comes to the resurrection. He comes to the gospel. And he does that to help them correct their foundational cracks to encourage them to move forward. Let's get this straight, he says. The gospel is our foundation. The gospel is the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the new life that's ours. The gospel doesn't end with just our salvation, doesn't end the day we become Christians. It continues on, and it will continue on for eternity. And that's, that's why this is so relevant to us, because we all have problems, we all have questions, we all need to have our foundation set right. We're not that much intrinsically different. So 
my thinking is, let's ask ourselves, how is my foundation? Am I relying on Jesus' death, resurrection, return? Do I understand that that is the basis of my life? Remember the past, who we were. We were sinners. We were separated from God. Remember the present. Christ died for us. He rose again. He brings us new life. Remember our future. This is not the end. A resurrection is coming. Just as Christ rose from the dead, we will rise. We will spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. So take hold of that. And then practically, how do we, what do we do with, with a foundation, a solid foundation? Well, most foundations, people build on them. If you, build, if you pour a foundation here in Elmhurst, you're going to build something on top of it. And so the call to us is also to start building on our foundation, to start realizing that life begins and continues. And we need to be part of that. We need to be part of God's plan. So I've come up with um, a few things here on building building on the foundation that I want to share with you. The first of those is from 1 Peter 2, 12. And this one I have called living a life worthy of the gospel. Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What's he talking about? He's talking about a life that is is consistent with God's plan, that is consistent with righteous living a life that ultimately brings glory to God. And isn't it interesting how this doesn't glorify us, but the glory to God comes on the day that he returns. What an exciting moment that is. You know, what an exciting motivation that is to think about living our lives, even if people don't notice what we're doing. But if we live in accordance with God's word, in accordance with his plan, there is going to be a day when people on his return will say, praise the Lord, this person was living for God. And it's going to bring glory to God. So that's, that's our first motivator. Live a life worthy of the, God, of, of the gospel. That's how you build on the foundation. And Philippians 2, 5 through 7, I want to read that for you. That's the next point. Live a life of service. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So our example is clear. Jesus laid down heaven and came to earth, humbled himself to be born as a human, to take on humanity. Why did he do that? To serve us to pay the price for our sins. So Christ came to serve. 
He washed the feet of his disciples, and what did he tell them? You'll understand what I'm doing here later, but now I need to serve you. And we have a call to serve other people. That's how we can build on our foundation. That's how we can live the Christian life. And that's a that's an exciting call. There's there's no end to where you can go with that. Point three, live a life of praise. In Hebrews 13, 15, I'll read that one for you too. It says, through Jesus, let us therefore continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So part of our lives should be about praising God, offering to him our praise, recognizing him as God, worshiping him. That's good for our souls, and it brings glory and honor to God. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we build on that foundation. Lastly, live a life of hope. In Romans 8, I want to read that to you. We hear about hope. We ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Hope is what we hang on to as we go through life. Hope is what we build on. What are some examples of hope in the scripture? Well, Abraham hoped in the impossible. A child, even though he was old, even though Sarah was old. But he trusted God. He hoped. He's one of our examples. There's plenty of examples probably in our own world as we think about hope. Hope keeps people going. Hope is a, a building block. It is, a, it is something that encourages and spurs us on. In every war, it's hope that keeps the underdog fighting. It's hope that causes people to show up and defend what is true and what is right. And in our lives, hope needs to be one of the things that we build on top of that foundation. Then there is a final, final building block. What did Jesus say when he ascended, before he ascended to heaven? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that final thing that I've mentioned is sharing the gospel, bringing the good news that we have built our foundation on to other people. It's not enough for us to learn all kinds of wonderful things and and even though there's great value in that, we need to bring that message to other people. We need to be able to share that with people around us. Our lives should be a testimony. Our words should help people to come to Jesus who says, I'll never drive them away. And as, I, as we finish up today, I want to remind you that the foundation is Christ alone. He is our solid rock, our foundation. We need to ask ourselves, and, and I will do that, ask myself, what is my foundation? What am I living for? Do I know, do I really know in my inner part 
that Christ, the Messiah, died for me, that he paid the price, that he righted the wrong and brought us into a right relationship with God, that he reversed the curse, that he brought new life, that he was raised, and that resurrection is ours, and that eternal time with God is ours. The fellowship is restored. The future is certain. So that's my challenge for you today, is to think about your foundation. Is it cracked? Does it need a little work? And once it's solid, how do we build on that? How do we make this life count for the kingdom? Lord, we do thank you for your words here through Paul. We thank you for the gospel that you have given us, the good news that our relationship with you is restored if we receive it. We thank you for the invitation. We thank you for the solidity, the historical facts that you came to the earth, that you lived among us, that you died for our sins, that you rose from the dead, and that you're coming again. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face. Amen.